I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Mark Berg. Uh, His new book is Making Your Crazy Work for You, From Isolation to Self-Acceptance, Compassionate Empathy and Love. Many of us encounter the same challenges over and over, even when our circumstances change. Perhaps we find ourselves having similar relationship problems with every partner we choose, feeling isolated no matter who we are surrounded by or internalizing a sense of failure no matter how many successes we accumulate. If crazy is doing the same thing while expecting different results, it seems that many of us are unwittingly engaging in crazy behavior. Of course, most of us do not want to admit to our own craziness, but what if by confronting and understanding our unhelpful behavior, we can learn how to embrace healthy and fulfilling relationships with ourselves and others? Offering reliable case studies and revealing exercises for self-reflection, Dr. Mark Berg, Jr. helps us recover the lost parts of ourselves so that we can embrace our new levels of self-acceptance and a deeper connection with others. Dr. Borg is a, a psychoanalyst practicing in New York City and a community and clinical psychologist. He's also the supervisor at the William Allenson White Institute. Welcome to the show, Dr. Borg, or Mark, if I can call you Mark. Please call me Mark, and I'm very, very happy to be here again. Okay, <clears throat> great to have you back. Um, yeah, if, if listeners remember Dr. Berg, we were he had a book called Don't Be a Dick, and now we're talking yep. making your crazy work for you. So great titles, I like them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they probably go together, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, actually, I think they do. That's another yeah. interview. Um, okay, so yeah. we don't want to admit our craziness, okay? But we do. But in order to go ahead and to we have to understand our craziness and how that influences our choices, right? So that we make good right. choices. And not do the same, poor, make the same poor choices. Poor choices that we seem to do in our craziness. Was that it? That's that's right. But we, you know, Grant and Danny and I, my co-authors, we have a very very specific way of defining crazy. And crazy, in the way we frame it, is actually kind of a red light signal to ourselves, uh, a signal that says, "Hey, you know, you are not being fed. You are not receiving resources. You are not receiving the kind of." Uh, you know, love, care, affection, attention that you need to, and I would go so far as to even say survive. You know, I mean, we, this kind of craziness comes from an early caretaking dynamic that gets created in the earliest caretaking environment, which is between a primary caretaker and a child. Uh, could be a mother, a father, you know, but whatever that, that early environment is, is not feeding, is not nurturing, is not caring effectively for the child, and what happens as the child develops, the child develops routines to caretake the caretaker in order to get the caretaker to caretake the child. What happens is this creates a dynamic where the the child learns to trust the world will not take care of her or him. And in that sense and in that distrust develops a kind of caretaking operation that completely cuts them off from receiving care themselves. So what we're really talking about is this dynamic that creates a state of isolation. And, you know, human beings are so thoroughly relational. We are so thoroughly interpersonal. We are so thoroughly interdependent upon each other that when we cut ourselves off psychologically from our primary resource, which is other people, then we wind up in a state of what we call self-irrelationship. But it's really solitary confinement. It's isolation. And so the, the crazy we're talking about 
is this accidental, this inadvertent, this self-protective kind of cage that we put ourselves in. And the crazy of isolation and recognizing that becomes a call for help. It becomes a red light signal to ourselves so that we can acknowledge the trauma that we've been through by being cut off from other people and learn to reach out and learn to put ourselves in mutual, reciprocal, loving, caring relationships with other people. So, I mean, I know so, that's kind of a, you know, intense definition of crazy, but that's what we mean. Okay, well, in taking that definition, let's put it into a case study or an example, yep. because we're sure. strive, we want to connect, we want to connect, but instead of connecting, we're isolating ourselves because right. of an early right. trauma, as you're describing it. Right. Also, I want to know, that's the right. early trauma, you said maybe we're not being cared for or fed, or but it can be different than that, can it? An absent father, an absent mother, uh, it could, you know, there are other circumstances besides just, you know, the... I think you described a lot of physical kind of uh, deprivation. There's a lots of kinds of deprivations that we can suffer from, but I, that's I think exactly that's right. two that's questions. Exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> that is so. You're so right on because it's so absolutely subjective that I mean, you can shower a child with love and affection and care and attention, and still somehow communicate that you're not doing it for the child. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing this as a some kind of routine to make yourself feel better. There are so many ways that we can get cut off from each other. There are so many ways that we can overprotect ourselves from the anxieties of being vulnerable with other people. And, I mean, you're so right. We, we, we span the spectrum all the way from circumstances of actual physical or sexual trauma all the way to just a parent who's terribly depressed, her or himself, and just isn't able to show up emotionally for the child. So a lot of what we describe in the book happens very um, innocently. You know, we are not talking about, you know, horrible perpetration. We're talking about a lot of people who've been deprived themselves and so are unable to give, and they are unable to acknowledge or recognize the, the absence in themselves that they don't have the resources or they're not able to offer the resources to other people. So, yes, I mean, this can be so... I mean, so many people come to me and they're like, Mark, I had really wonderful parents. Mark, I grew up in, with plenty. I grew up, you know, in a community of affection. Why am I in this isolated state? And it's hard. You're right. I mean, sometimes it, it really requires, you know, a, a, a microscope to get in and kind of find out where the deprivation occurred, where we learn that we had to take care of others and in doing so, created a, a, a kind of psychological defense system that did not allow others to take care of us. What it is, really, is a one-directional caretaking system where we are caretaking others so intensely that it, it literally, like a fire hose going full blast, nothing gets in. And we don't even recognize it because we think, I'm generous, I'm altruistic, I'm philanthropic, I'm all of this stuff. I am. But in doing so, so intensely, I don't let anybody take care of me. And caretaking has to be reciprocal to be healthy. It has to be. That has to be so painful. I mean, you're talking about your patients, your clients, to be able to recognize that because I think we Mm -hmm. fight against – we really do fight against that. And I'm thinking of examples of actually – of girlfriends who keep pick, you know, who have been divorced. I'm old enough. They've been divorced once, twice. Keep marrying the same mm-hmm. man over and over again, sure, and sure. who will say, "But sure. my father, I had a good father. He wasn't a bad father. Not a bad role right. model." That's Maybe, right. Uh, yeah, and over and over, over and over. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and, you know, I mean, look, the, the core of psychoanalysis itself is something we call the repetition compulsion, right? It, yep. but it's Freud coined the term, you know, back in you know, 1920-something. So, you know, I mean, it's like, so we know it's there, right? We know that things in the mind tend to repeat themselves. And what are we doing? We're looking for familiarity. We're looking for circumstances that actually allow us to create a homeostasis between ourselves and our environment. Again, environment as represented by other people. So again, so much of this just happens because we naturally drift into states of familiarity. And the thing that psychoanalysis adds to this is this unconscious mind that is so highly tuned to that familiarity that we have no clue that we are repeating it over and over again. I'm like, I'm not, that guy's not the last guy. Look, he doesn't look anything like the last guy. This guy's working. This guy has two kids he takes care of, blah, blah, blah. And lo and behold, if you haven't done some actual work on what you're bringing into the dynamic, into the situation, and you keep thinking the next person, the next circumstance is going to change you, I guarantee you you're going to repeat it. The only way forward is within. The only way forward. I mean, it's funny because my wife and I are, are also working on a project, working on a book about couples and what we're learning in the pandemic <laughs> and from ourselves in the pandemic and from being stuck 10 hours in that Virginia snowstorm yesterday. Yeah, it sounds horrific. <laughs> Oh, my God. I got home at 4.30. I mean, we got canceled. Our flight from California got delayed. Then it got canceled in Florida. We got in a car, drove 16 hours, and about 15 into it, we landed in Virginia snowstorm. So we had this incredible opportunity to be challenged with how we've learned all this kind of stuff. How we Because he's also a couple therapist, interestingly. Yeah. But the funny thing is, we have two rules. We're working on a book. And the two rules are this, for, for couples working on relationships. One Keep the focus on yourself. Two, refer to rule number one. The only kind of work we can do in couple work is to try to understand our contribution to the problem, to the situation, to the issue. And once we understand our contribution to the problem, we can start actually contributing to the solution. And so I think that's what you're talking about. You're talking about these friends, these people, these three-time divorced friends of ours who keep saying the next person's going to be different. Well, I hope the next person who's going to be different is me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's the only thing, right? The only right. person that needs to be different is me. If I'm different, I'm going to attract a totally different kind of person. Yeah. Well, you say use your own vulnerability as a recovery yeah. tool. So how do you yeah. do that? Well, again, it takes a, you take a great risk, right? Because the four things that your relationship, which is really what we're talking about, is this uh, it's this caretaking system that operates so intensely that in the care you provide, you don't allow others to care for you. Your relationship protects us from four major psychological risks. One, empathy. Two, intimacy. Three, vulnerability is what we're talking about. And four is emotional investment. Because again, emotional investment sneaks up on us. And so all of a sudden, I'm in this relationship and I thought I could just snap my fingers and get out of it because now you're just like the last person. Problem is now I'm invested emotionally. I can't just jump out. So in order to get to these four things, Grant, Danny and I in our book, and now this is our third book actually on the subject, and we've actually created a whole model of recovery that we call the dream sequence. And uh, the dream sequence is discovery, repair, and it's interactive repair, uh, <clears throat> um, empowerment, creating alternatives, and mutuality. So we have a whole system. We don't just like ask somebody to snap their fingers and take the deep leap into the deep end of the pool of vulnerability. We really ask people and guide people and work with people to help them use this dream sequence to allow themselves in this pretty intense process to then start taking subtle risks toward vulnerability. 
I want to know what you two did in the car for 11 hours to... <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah. With two kids, uh, ten and fourteen, yeah. two kids. One is a girl. One is a girl who now is a boy, and we're you know, it was ten, and we're all in the car. Yeah. I mean, we've got we we do have devices, but we only have one USB, so we're each charging our devices. You know, uh, you know, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, t- taking turns. But we, but the amazing thing was, as stressful and as intense as this was. I mean, we love each other. We were able to actually do this crazy thing we call talking. You know, <laughs> we were happy we were actually able to talk about things that had gone on over the Christmas vacation. You know, we all four were with my mother and stepfather for you know ten days, and you know that was something to talk about because That's we all have different religious and political affiliations and blah blah blah. But like, we talked. We sometimes they cried because it was scary. There were some times on that I ninety five that were really scary. We were in a a Chevy Malibu. I mean, that thing does not have four by. We had to rely on our neighbors in the various cars around us to push us out of snowbanks several times. We helped neighbors push themselves out of snowbanks. So, I mean, you know, it was a, it really was kind of an amazing community experience. We heard so after the, I want to know, after the, you're describing it, obviously, from your point yeah. of view. Okay, yeah, so yeah, there's yeah. your wife and the two kids. Did they have a different, yeah. uh, did they feel the same way you did? I mean, to you, it's, or to me, hearing you, it sounds like it's, it was very positive. You got, you know, was it for everyone? Catherine, we <laughs> took a detour on this road called One. Now, remember, I, I mean, let me tell you, I've never been, I mean, I've been to Virginia once for my aunt's funeral several years ago. I've ne- I mean, this is like the second time in my life. I don't know anything about driving in the snow. I'm from California originally. I don't drive in New York. So I take this Highway 1 because it's a detour, and it's supposedly ways of telling me it cuts off about, you know, two hours of our trip. Highway 1 is pure ice. Highway 1 has roads that are going, you know, like angles I can't imagine. And at one point, you know, I, I overheard my younger kid in the backseat say, Kata. If we don't live through this, mm-hmm. I want you to know that I love you, and I'm really sorry that I didn't spend more time hanging out with you. And I'm telling you, as a father to these beautiful kids, I was just, you know, heartbroken and desperate to get ourselves through this. Wow. I mean, it was it was harrowing. There were tears. There were so so. I'm describing it after the fact as a positive because we we all wound up going to our favorite restaurant here in New York City. <laughs> Yesterday, after getting home at 4.30 in the morning, and we sat there at this Vietnamese restaurant called Sao Mai on First Avenue, and just, I mean, we just, like, held each other's hands, and we were so grateful for how we got through it, but no, it was not all positive experience. (laughs) But, you know, maybe it is to the point of the book, you know, that we, my wife and I really rely on each other. You know, through the pandemic, we have worked as a team. We have home, you know, had the kids at home for school. We both have practices. We're running in this two bedroom apartment. I mean, we, you know, I mean, I think that the way that we navigated that I-95 catastrophe yesterday was, uh, you know, that, that we've done, we're doing this work. We, she, she's not working on the irrelationship project with me. That's Grant and Danny, but my wife and I work really hard, you know, to do what we call a rupture and repair, you know, which is to try to make use of every problem, to make use of every conflict and to make use of it in the repair, just get a little stronger each time, to use each rupture as an opportunity to get a little stronger, to open up to more intimacy, empathy, vulnerability, investment. You know, we, we, we do the work. 
At least that's what it looked like yesterday in the car. Yeah. You're always doing the work like you just described it. I mean, you did it through the quarantine. I was going to say, well, we're still in the pandemic. I think maybe we'll always be in a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. and, oh, my gosh. <laughs> right? Uh, I mean, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this uh, is really important because all of us are going to be are forced. I think we're going to continue to always be forced in those kinds of situations like you're describing, being forced to quarantine, being forced to yeah. isolate, uh, all of these kinds of new ways of interacting with one another. So the work that That's you're right. doing with couples really translates into all of this cultural change, I would say. Well, I really appreciate you saying so, because honestly, this I, I'm still wiped out from the drive home yesterday. I'm still like, I'm just, I'm, I'm a little hungover from the whole thing, and I didn't know what this interview was going to be like today, but I'm very happy to hear you say that, <laughs> and, and I didn't expect to really talk about that, but I think it, it, it really is relevant to what we're talking about, right? That yeah. in, these, in these moments of crisis, and well, some of us are in chronic crisis now, you know, people who are living alone, or people who are living in families and couples where they are having a hard time turning to each other for, for care and affection just because I, kinds of reasons why we get stuck in situations and, and feel like we can't be vulnerable, which is the word that you jumped on, and I think you're right. so hard to be vulnerable. It's so hard to let other people know that we're hurting and that we're scared. Yeah. Well, I, for me, it would be, I don't know if it was the opposite, but it was because I'm in New York City and I'm also in Albany. I live in two places, but during the quarantine or during you know, 2020, I had my son and daughter-in-law, three grandchildren, twins, two years old and a four-year-old, and we're all in my house in, in Albany. And I, that was the most difficult. I think that was the biggest mm-hmm. learning experience that I've had because I'm used to living sort of by myself. I mean, you're sharing your experience yesterday. I mean, I have, I was married for 20 years. I have had Mm. a boyfriend for 30 and I figured we have, (laughs) we live together and then we also have our separate houses. So I'm, (laughs) that's how I solved the problem, but uh, maybe not the way I was, I'm supposed to be doing it, but it works. (laughs) Let's put it that way. Yeah. 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 No, that's it. It works is the solution to me. Whatever works. Yeah. No, that's interesting because I, I know I, I agree with you. I, my experience with, with patients is, is exactly what you're saying. On the one hand, let's just say at, at its most extreme, what I found is the most problematic situations are one, it's total isolation, actual isolation. Two, more like what you're talking about. Like, wait a minute, I have my husband, I have my wife, I have my kids, maybe my grandkids, I have my cats, I have my dog. Why am I suffering? Why is this the worst situation I've ever been in my life? In fact, it's crazy because I have a house full of people and I'm lonely. I hear that all the time. No, that's exactly the spectrum. And I think both sides of that, at least potentially, can be part of what we're talking about, right? That one is actual isolation, like literally I'm cut off from people. Two is I'm isolated because I'm around all these people and I need to defend myself from how overwhelming it is to be around these people and feel like I can't really get what I need. Not really. And so if that goes on for weeks and months, years, of course, it creates a great state of deprivation. And, and, it, and it's ironic because we're saying, like, I, 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 it's like I can't make sense of it. It's like I'm totally deprived, even though my most cherished loved ones are right here. But that's a really tough situation that the book definitely addresses. Yeah. So a, client, a patient comes to you, that's the issue, that's the presenting problem, then what? How long does it take, let's say, when, if they get into th- when they get into therapy with you? Because psychoanalysis, uh, yeah, it's not counseling, it's I mean, very different. 
Yeah, it is. But, you know, the interesting thing is, I think, you know, and it's a, it, I was going to say this earlier because something came up that in our conversation that made me think this, but I think the fact that you reached out to a therapist, I think the fact that <laughs> these days you turned on your screen and you took the risk of opening up to someone, even if the person comes highly recommended, but you're really opening up to a stranger to talk about what the problem is. To me, that's the greatest step. To me, the biggest step you know, we say that, like, that the difference between one and a million, billion, zillion is nothing compared to the difference between zero and one. And if you're hurting, you don't know what's going on, but you're willing to reach out to somebody, that is the difference of zero to one. That is a paradigmatic change in yourself. So, you know, already by the time you make a phone call, by the time you've reached out, You've already, I think, implemented what I think is the greatest step in the whole process, which is discover, you know, it's the discovery step. It's the, like, I got something going on. I need help. Because the second you turn to someone else for help, you have broken out of isolation. That is a huge step. How long does it take to get through the whole rest of the dream sequence and all the way through? That's probably a lifelong process. That's probably a process that you're going to apply to every relationship that you can because basically you're saying to the next relationship and the new ones and the old ones, you're saying, hey, you know, I haven't really made use of this relationship for my own health and well-being. You know, I've been sitting here in this relationship thinking, oh, I need to get this and I need to get that and I need to do whatever, not realizing all of that is just creating this zero-sum game. What you really need to do is, here's what I'm giving, here's what I need. Here's what I'm giving, here's what I need. So we literally define relationships sanity as a process of give and take, relatively equal give and take. It's that simple. How long does it take? I don't know. It reminds me of the old uh, Tootsie Roll, Tootsie Pop commercial where the kid goes to the owl and he says, how many licks does it take, you know, to get to the bottom, to the center of the Tootsie Roll, Tootsie Pop, and the owl takes a lick. He goes, a one, a two, and then he takes a big chomp, he bites into it, right? And you go, oh, three. That's it, right? It's when we take that leap of faith. And then you use the word. When we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, it's a huge risk, but you can do it at any time. Do you do therapy online, Zoom? Oh, massively. I mean, I'm like, I'm between sessions right now. The second I get off here, I got to go pop right back. I had to, you know, move people around so I could talk to you today. <laughs> I am, I am, I mean, it's an avalanche. <laughs> you know? Yes, I do therapy. As a matter of fact, when it first started, I was like, I can't do couple therapy online. That's crazy. Now I do tons of couple therapy online, and it's pretty effective. So that's yeah. my next question. So what's that like for you as a therapist? How did that change? Does it? Ch- how did it change you doing Zoom online? Because that's a whole. It's a whole different context, right? And <laughs> and how are you able to adjust to that? Um, you well, know, I th- yeah. I, that's a really great question. See, I've been kind of. I've been a little bit. You know, I'm, I'm with Grant and Danny. You know, we're doing our work, and we talk, and we have like a little bit of peer supervision. But well, one thing I noticed when I got into uh, you know, when the Zoom and you know, all of the virtual started, I've turned to my own psychoanalytic community much, much, much more profoundly than ever before. I, I joined a peer supervision group. I go to my institute's clinic meeting every Tuesday. You know, I really have just gotten a lot more involved. I'm now teaching a class to Chinese psychoanalytic students in China virtually. I just I got much more involved in my larger psychoanalytic community. And, the, and, and, and that's an answer to your question in that I feel like I've needed a lot more um, sense of membership to my larger community. It really 
you know, because I, interestingly, being a therapist is a very kind of maverick uh, job, you know, <laughs> you're like, yeah. you can really be way out in your own world and not making all that much contact with your peers and colleagues. And so um, I've always maintained contact, but I've, I'm maintaining a lot more contact now. I just feel like I need a lot more care <laughs> you know? yeah. and, and, and sense of community. And from the client's point of view or the patient's point of view, I've thought about if I went into therapy again, and as a social worker, I've been in therapy, in and out of therapy, which I think is a good thing and one should do if they're going to be do counseling. Uh, But the whole trust issue, I'm I'm really asking you this maybe as the patient, like if I went into therapy and I'm going to a therapist, we're on Zoom, how do we know that his uh, two kids aren't in the background listening to what I have to say? Privacy. Trust. Yeah, that's, a, that's such yeah. a great question. I mean, again, because it's a matter of your confidentiality, right? It's a matter of your privacy and your safety, ultimately, which I think is the most important foundational <clears throat> bedrock of any therapy is, is client safety. <clears throat> and so what I've done throughout the time, because again, remember, there were four people in this two-bedroom apartment throughout months and months of this pandemic. And uh, what I did was I just told my patients very honestly, I'm like, here's my situation. I'm in this apartment got two kids. We're all in our own places. Everybody's got headphones on, but I want to just tell you if anything interferes with your privacy, if a kid has an emergency, pounds on the door, whatever, you know, I want us to be able to work on a solution that will be comfortable for you. Cause I actually had, had one woman that I work with three times have a, a, a client that I work with three times a week who, um, her issue is, you know, fertility. And I mean, she cannot bear to hear like laughing kids running around the apartment. And so, I had to, you know, really be very, very firm with my kids during those months and say, look, you know, this, this, and she knows I have kids, this, this particular person. So, but, but still there's this very sensitive issue. And with me and sensitive issues, I never impose the solution on my client. I always ask my client, how can we solve this? What can we do about the confidentiality? What can we do about the privacy? What can we do about the, about the sensitivity, for instance, the fertility issue in my patient, I think, was um, very, very um, grateful that we were able to work out a mutual solution that even if there were those couple of moments in the month where the kids were screaming or, or something happened, she knew that the two of us had taken the time to very seriously address the issue and then uh, work to remedy it if it, if, you know, again, rupture and repair. Every rupture is an opportunity to work together to solve the problem. So that was a big one. I mean, I think it still is, except the kids are now back in school. So fortunately, (laughs) but, uh, and I'm sure that's only one example because people come to you with a lot of different kinds of issues, obviously. And, uh, but you connect with them and engage in a way that maybe as one thinks of traditional psychoanalysts as being more distant, you know, you're lying on the couch and the person's not there, therapist isn't saying anything. That's kind of the opposite of the way you're engaging with your, with your patients. Oh yeah. I tell, I, I, true. I totally break the model of psychoanalysis. I mean, people are like, you're a psychoanalyst. I am, you know, but I talk and I engage and I, I really believe in interaction. I really believe that the primary work of psychoanalysis is the therapist and the client working together to get into the problematic dynamic and then working together to work their way out of the problematic dynamic. That's actually a, a psychoanalytic concept, current psychoanalytic concept that we call enactment. You, know, you work your way through the problem by getting into the problem, repeating some of that dynamic with your therapist, and then using the insight together to, to work your way out of the problematic dynamic and then apply it in other places of your life. That is contemporary psychoanalysis, the I practice it. 
Yeah. And we so, write about that in the book a lot, actually, all three books. Yeah, well, I think that's an important point, contemporary psychoanalysis. We have two minutes left or one and a half minutes okay. left. So <laughs> making your crazy work for you from isolation to self-acceptance, compassionate, empathy, and love, Dr. Mark Borg. Uh, website uh, and or websites we can go to to get more information about you. I guess even if we want to become one of your patients, uh, yeah. what do people do? Uh, not, right, not right now. <laughs> you know, and not, you're too so, busy right now. Too many. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so yeah. booked. I'm, like, booked for the next years. But you can look. You know what? The best way to find me is just type a Google search, Mark B. Borg, Jr. I have an irrelationship website. I have a website to the publisher, which is Central Recovery Press. We have two blogs on Psychology Today, uh, Irrelationship and Relationship Sanity are the names of those blogs. I write lots of articles, I do academic stuff, blah, 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 whatever. Just look me up. And I look, I, I, maybe I jumped the gun. If you really need to talk to me, look me up and call me. I will always talk to you. I don't have room for new clients right now, but, but, but someday I will. Okay. You know? See you in a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. They can hold out for that long. But anyway, great having you on the Hopefully show Hopefully not, again. but I have good resources. So call me anyway. I can still okay. find you. I can help you. I will right. help you. I, I don't mean to sound like I wouldn't. I so. certainly will. You know? Got it. Dr. Mark Borg, thank you so much. Thank you. Great talking to you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. 